Please stand. We're going to read God's Word. Our New Testament reading is going to be actually from 1 John. That's what you see on the bulletin outline, different from the bulletin. We're going to read 1 John 3. We'll read verses 1 through 5. And I went through six, actually. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Amen. Let's turn now to Zechariah chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... A flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward, The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Amen. You may be seated.
So on home game days during the football season, <clears throat> you've probably seen that airplane that flies around campus and downtown with the big banner uh, flying out behind it. Is it uh, carries an advertisement of some kind. I actually don't know what it's advertising. I haven't gotten close enough to see it recently. <clears throat> but I imagine if you're sitting in Beaver Stadium for the game, you probably can't miss it. You're just flying around there. It's actually a pretty clever strategy, I guess. Uh, a bad way to get your ad in front of 200,000 eyeballs at the same time. Kind of a captive audience sitting there. You just fly your plane and everybody has to look at the banner. Um, what I'd like to know, if anybody... Uh, happens to know this, is what the dimensions are on that um, sign that's dragging out behind the plane. I bet if you saw it laid out on the ground, you'd think, well, that is really huge. Probably looks even bigger on the ground than it does up in the air. Um, And if any of you happen to know how big it is, maybe you can tell me the answer afterwards, but preferably, can you give me the dimensions in cubits instead of feet so we can compare it? Whenever I teach on the doctrine of Scripture, I often will uh, cover what we call the four attributes of the Bible. Some of you may have heard me teach on this. You probably have. Those four attributes are sufficiency, necessity, authority, and perspicuity, which means clarity. Um, And often when I cover the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture, I'm often helped very much by the section of our Confession of Faith on this topic where it says, what this doctrine doesn't mean. And it basically says, and I'll paraphrase for the sake of clarity, <laughs> um, it basically says that not everything in the Bible is equally clear or equally clear to every person. But the things that, that are necessary for us to know and believe for salvation are so clear that anybody, even without a high degree of education or something like that, can get a sufficient understanding of the Bible just through ordinary kinds of study. In other words, you don't need some secret knowledge or some extra special revelation from God to understand what it means. And that principle can be really helpful, I think, when we come to a passage like this one and we think, what in the world is this chapter about? A flying scroll? What is that? This basket with a woman sitting in it and this lead cover on it and these other women with wings like storks flying off with it and building a house for the basket. What is going on here? And some people approaching this might think, and people often do, when they, when they get to difficult prophetic passages, they'll think, there's got to be some kind of like, code going on here. I've got to crack the code. This must be like the, the, like the Navajo, cold, uh, Navajo code talkers in World War II, um, where it doesn't make sense all by itself. You have to know the code to... Um, that you got to know this kind of secret meaning beneath what it actually says. That is not the direction that we want to go tonight, though. And I want to encourage you with the, our confidence in that doctrine of the perspicuity, the clarity of the Bible. That section from the Confession of Faith I was mentioning teaches us, first of all, it teaches us that when we come to passages like this that are hard to understand... The first thing it teaches is that's okay, because not everything in the Bible is equally clear. It doesn't mean it's all easy. Um, Just because the basic message of the Bible is clear doesn't mean that every passage is equally easy to understand. On the other hand, though, it also reminds us 
that the teaching of the Bible doesn't require some extraordinary, special, secret knowledge to access it. We don't need a code ring to access what Zechariah is saying. Or all we need are a few good tools of interpretation, a little bit of help maybe from some other people who have had a chance to study and reflect on it. And then this is very important, a solid understanding of how prophecy works, how the prophets use symbols. And remember, I've told you this many times, that the prophets are not interested in merely telling the truth. They're interested in showing the truth through imagery, through these vivid symbolic pictures that help to get the truth up into our imaginations and down deep into our affections and our wills. And that's, that's all that's happening here. If we try to overcomplicate things and treat things like this as though they're written in code, then what we end up doing is we get off track, and really what, we us- what ends up happening usually is we end up reading things into the text that aren't actually there. We don't want to do that. We brought them with us, and we said, well, I don't know what it does mean, so I'm going to make something up and <laughs> read it into the text. That's not a good way to go. Um, what I hope I'll be able to show you tonight is that actually Zechariah's message in this chapter is not very complicated at all. It's quite simple. It's so simple that we might miss it if we're looking for something more complicated. This is a chapter about God taking the initiative to remove the evil from his people's lives and land. God is clearing the way for his people to thrive and flourish in their covenant relationship with him as holy people living in a holy place with their holy God. Or to put it even more simply, this chapter is about God getting rid of evil in Israel. And that is good news for the people of God. So we're going to see that first in verses 1 through 4, curse and cleansing. And verses 5 through 8, we're going to call, kind of ironically, the problem of evil. And then in verses 9 through 11, the God who takes away our sin. So curse and cleansing, the problem of evil, and the God who takes away our sin. All right? So uh, curse and cleansing. What is this this flying scroll? It says it's about 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And a cubit is about 18 inches. So we're talking about 30 feet by 15 feet. This is a big Scroll. It's like a billboard flying through the sky with writing on both sides of it. Uh, and so that's why I brought up earlier that airplane flying around Beaver, Beaver Stadium. Of course, ancient Israelite wouldn't have had a concept of that, but I think it can help us to think a big banner flying through the sky. What is it for? It's so that everybody can see it, everybody can read it, nobody can miss it. God is making his message unmistakable. Everybody's going to be able to understand it. He's openly displaying what he has to say for all of his people to hear, and that's the point of this flying scroll. What's the content of the message from God this flying scroll is is depicting, displaying for everybody to see? Well, it is a message, a very serious message, of covenant curse against the breaking of God's law. Now, this is not some brand new curse that's coming out of the blue here. The Lord is not changing the rules in the middle of the game, saying, oh, here's now this new threat of judgment um, that you didn't know about before. No, this, this flying scroll is simply the open and public proclamation of the very ancient terms of the covenant, the 
covenant that God gave his people through Moses. And frankly, I think one writer points this out, these, these recently returned exiles have had a lot of experience with covenant curse, haven't they? The curse of the law has already gone out over the land of Judah when they went into captivity the first time. Well, in in the first place, I mean. Sometimes when we tell the history in a very simplistic way, we can get the impression, well, once the exile was over, there was no more risk of covenant curse. That was what led to getting carried into captivity in Babylon, but then the people came back and then everything was happy. Everything was wonderful and uh, at peace in their relationship with God. This was now the time for covenant blessing. The problem is that when Israel came back from Babylon, they still had the same sin problem in their hearts that led them to Babylon in the first place. And you see the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi confronting all kinds of sin among the people of Judah and Jerusalem. People are still breaking the law of God. And, and, and the people who came back from the exile, yes, God had mercy on them. Yes, it was a great act of grace for God to lo- allow them to come back to the promised land and live in Jerusalem again. But it's not like they had some kind of diplomatic immunity where they couldn't be prosecuted now for any sins that they might commit once they got back. No, it wasn't like that at all. They, too, this is the weighty truth under which these returned exiles were laboring. They, too, could come under covenant judgment just as much as their fathers did if they broke covenant with God. So part of Zechariah's job as a prophet is to proclaim God's warnings about what will happen if his people reject his law. And it needs to be just as clear as if a 30-foot sign was flying through the air, staring you in the face. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. This curse of the law against the sin of God's people. Okay. So, is the flying scroll and everything it's going to do, is this good news or bad news? Well, it depends. It depends on who you are. Um, it depends on your relationship with this law and with the God of this law and of this covenant. So if you're one of the lawbreakers, one of these people who are stealing or swearing falsely, By swearing falsely, they're breaking God's lie, both by lying and by taking God's name in vain, by the way. Well, then obviously this is not good news for you. You're going to be cleaned out, it says. This is an imagery of of total destruction. Um, And as the passage goes on, you see this scroll isn't just going to hang in the air. The scroll is going to enter your house, it is going to hit home, and is going to come to bear personally on you, and you're going to be consumed by it completely, the Lord says. What a scary visual image that is for this huge scroll to come down and then bust its way through your front door and come into your living room and start destroying your house from the inside out. 
the timber, the stones, everything. And this is showing us how seriously God takes the sacredness of his law, his covenant. So in a sense, this is very bad news for sinners. On the other hand, this is not all bad news for everybody. For those in Judah who do care about God's law, who do want to see God honored and obeyed, those who have learned the lessons of the exile, who want to be diligent to stay faithful to the Lord, to keep his covenant now in their generation, there's a sense in which this is good news. Imagine if you're that kind of person living in Jerusalem. You see all around you these other kinds of people who are living according to a very different agenda, an agenda of rebellion against God. And it's a mixed community. You have all these mixed motivations within the covenant people. That's going to be a very scary situation for you. If, If this is what our community is going to be like, how are we ever going to have a whole and thriving relationship with our God back here in the land? How are we going to get to stay in um, the land of Canaan if we're not a holy people? Everything is going wrong again, and how are we going to avoid going right back into exile where we came from? And see, so the message of this flying scroll is good news and answer to that question. We've got to notice who takes action here, though. Who is going to address this problem of law-breaking in Judah? Well, it's the Lord. The Lord is going to clean out this persistent sin among his people. So this covenant curse that comes home to the thieves and the liars, um, it's going to be bad news for them, but it's going to be good news for the rest of the covenant community because the removal, the cleaning out of those lawbreakers is going to mean security, and peace for the rest of the covenant community. Okay. Now, naturally here, we'll, we want we, our inclination to think, oh yeah, well surely it's good news for me and I can say, I want God to cleanse away all those sinners out there so that we righteous people can be the ones left over. Of course, we have to be careful we think about how all of this imagery applies to us, right? It's easy to think, oh, yeah, we want, we want God to judge the lawbreakers so the rest of us upstanding citizens don't have to worry about them anymore. Of course, we have to think, well, not so fast, because don't we have to, if we're honest, number ourselves among the guilty, not among the innocent? Who's to say that we're on the right side of that divide And the the fact is that left to ourselves, we are not. What we deserve is to be cleaned out. And frankly, if you went on an individual by individual basis, if you went just on the record of obedience to the law of God, and that was all you had for each individual in Judah, well, everybody deserved to be cleaned out by this curse. We deserve to have that giant curse come into our homes, consume us, our houses, our families. Of course, this is where it becomes so important, the bigger picture of the covenant. The way of forgiveness and reconciliation and access to God through faith. And the sacrifice, the atonement that God provided comes to bear. This curse is not coming against those who are walking by faith walking in repentance, 
from their sin, admitting that they deserve this curse, but taking refuge in the Lord to preserve them from it. And this is where it becomes so important living in our time to remember what Jesus has done for us when it comes to covenant curse. You remember what Galatians chapter 3 says? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. By becoming a curse for us. See, we deserve what was written on this flying scroll that threatened those lawbreakers in Judah. Continues to threaten lawbreakers today, frankly. This flying scroll is hovering over all the world through the message of covenant curse of the law of God contained in the Scriptures. Whenever the law is read, like we read it this morning in corporate worship, whenever it's preached and proclaimed, this flying scroll is going out again over the congregation, over anyone who will listen to it. The message of the curse of the law. That's, and we're, we're being confronted with the fact that this is what we deserve. But the gospel comes and it tells us, Christ has become a curse for us. And so he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has taken that curse in our place. This flying scroll has enveloped him and destroyed him so that we might be spared. So once you are in Christ, then perspective changes. That is when we can start to see this flying scroll as good news. We can, we can start to see the goodness in this cleaning out of the place that God plans to live with his people. Remember in Revelation 21, we've talked about this before, the beautiful description of the New Jerusalem, where it says that nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's good news, because we wouldn't want a heaven that is still mixed with evil, that's just like this world, Right? And we have to be the first to admit that, yeah, on our own merits, we would be the first to be excluded from a place like that. But then we are reduced to humility and gratitude that the Lord has, in fact, made a way for us to be brought in and forgiven and cleansed by His grace so that we can live in that place that is unmixed with evil. Because our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. That is good news for the people of God. That God is going to clean out the evil from the place where he plans to dwell with his holy people. Okay, now the imagery shifts in verse 5. Now Zechariah sees this basket going out on the move. And the angel tells him that the basket represents the iniquity that is in all the land. And then the picture becomes even more vivid when um, the lead cover is taken off the basket and inside is not just something, but someone, the symbolic uh, woman wickedness. Now, I've called this section the problem of evil, and I told you it was kind of ironic, ironically titled that. Because, of course, when people talk about the problem of evil, they're usually um, talking about the uh, supposed apologetics problem. You know, if God is so good and powerful, then why is there evil in the world in the first place? But of course, most of the Bible is focused on a very different kind of problem of evil. The problem of how evil creatures like us can live at peace with a holy God when there's so much, so much evil in our hearts and lives. That's really the problem of evil 
that the Bible is trying to focus us on, rather than being distracted by these unbelieving attempts to basically blame God for the evil in the world, Scripture consistently places the blame squarely on the stubborn choices of human beings. The existence of evil, that comes from rebellious creatures. The real problem is how can we rebellious creatures ever know our holy God um, in the way that Scripture describes as our destiny. Um, So the problem here is much like the problem in the first four verses. How is the returning remnant going to survive in the promised land if there's iniquity like this going out in the land, this wickedness um, on the inside of their hearts? This is an overwhelming problem. But once again, there's going to be a divine solution here. The Lord is going to take the initiative to deal with this wickedness in Judah so that it will not derail his plans to save and bless Jerusalem. Zechariah says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And again, this is one of those places where you think, Wait, what? These women with wings like storks. It's such a bizarre mental image. Um, and you think, like, do storks have some special secret uh, meaning here? No, the, 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 again, this is not that complicated. It's just that storks are really, really big birds. If you have a basket that has a woman inside it and a lead cover, it's going to be very heavy, and you're going to need big wings to be able to carry it away. And that's, that's all that's going on here. In fact, I looked this up. Storks have some of the largest wingspans of any of the birds out there. Some, some species are like on the two and a half feet in, but some of them have like 10-foot wingspans. I'm not sure about the storks that would have been in Israel, probably somewhere in between. But they're big birds with big wings, and that's what the Lord has provided for this basket full of wickedness to be airlifted out of there and taken to a distant place where it's going to stay away from God's people. And the place they take the basket is kind of interesting. They take it to Shinar. Now, Shinar is um, one of the ways that the Bible sometimes speaks of the region around Babylon. Babylon is in the area of Shinar. Um, In particular, in the book of Genesis, it is in the plain of Shinar that the Tower of Babel is built. Babel is associated with Babylon. You remember that fake holy mountain that people tried to create, that fake temple reaching up to heaven. Um, Ian Duguid points out that when these winged women take the basket and build a house for it in Shinar, it's, it's like they're setting up a competing temple a temple outside the promised land that's in direct contrast to the temple that God's people are currently building in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem versus the temple, or the house in Jerusalem of God versus the house for wickedness in Shinar. And by putting it in Shinar, putting it in Babylon, the Lord is showing here that restored Judah is going to be different. They're going to be distinct from that land that once held them captive. God is going to take Israel's sin and he's going to put it back where it belongs. Back where, in some sense, it came from in the first place. Because you remember how Israel borrowed so much of their idolatry from uh, the powerful pagan nations around them. 
But now, in Shinar, there's going to be a house for wickedness, which means that what's going to be left in Jerusalem? The house of the Lord. Again, this is good news for God's people, for this iniquity, this wickedness to be taken away by the power of God. That's what I love about this last section, is how simply and clearly it pictures God taking his people's sins away. We use, we use that phrase, we can use it in kind of a fuzzy way, basically a synonym for forgiveness, a synonym for atonement. But I love how concrete it is here. The Lord is physically taking the wickedness out of Judah and putting it somewhere else, sequestering it, never to return. I love in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is what the Lord is doing. He is taking Judah's sin away. It's like in Micah 7, where it says, The Lord will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, Or Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What a picture this is of the Lord's cleansing and sanctifying power to take the wickedness right out of the community of his people and to banish it somewhere far away. So that what is left is a holy people in a holy place ready to have unbroken fellowship with a holy God. That is what God's people so desperately needed in Zechariah's day as the temple was being built. We've seen the theme before of how are we going to build this holy place when we are an unholy people and our unholiness is just going to infect this holy building that we're supposed to be putting up. God is going to take their wickedness away by his power, something they can't do for themselves. And this isn't just what they needed. This is what we continue to need today as God builds his church. We need God to do what we cannot. We need God to take our sin away, to rid us of it. Not just the guilt of it, not just the punishment of it, not just the consequences we want to avoid. No, we need Christ to take away the sin itself from our very hearts, that sin that clings so closely. But as powerful as it so often feels, God's grace is more powerful still. And so this chapter then, I think, when we take these images all together, we think, what is God trying to show us here? What does he want us to, what does he want the impact of this to be on our hearts? I think that it leaves us with a warning as well as a comfort and an exhortation. The warning, which is very serious, remember this is not good news for everybody. The warning is if you're just stubborn and you don't care what God's law says, and you're just going to keep doing what you want to do, and you're going to ignore him and his law, then for you there is a covenant curse written on a flying scroll. You can't miss it. You can't say, oh, I never heard that. You consider yourself on notice. And you repent before that curse comes home to roost in your home. That's the warning. There's also a comfort. 
if you're humbling yourself, if you're seeking to repent, if you're receiving the forgiving grace that's found through Christ, seeking to walk in new obedience, that's different. Yes, you're still a sinner, but what the Lord is doing here is he's showing you his power and his settled intention to take that sin away, to free you by his power from what you are powerless against on your own. And then finally, I think there's an exhortation. Much along the lines of what we read earlier from 1 John chapter 3, where it says that Jesus appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Think about the holiness of Jesus, the holiness of our Savior. Because John goes on to say, everyone who hopes in Jesus then purifies himself as Jesus is pure. And he warns us that if we make a practice of sinning, well, that's, that's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, John says. We must never grow comfortable with sin. We must never carve out a, a comfortable space for it in our lives. We must never pull up a chair and give it a seat at the table of our lives. We must never cherish it and give it a home, Right? No, the Lord intends, what you see here is the Lord intends to eradicate the sin, the wickedness, the evil from our hearts and lives. And that has got to be our attitude towards sin as well as the people of God. To have a no-quarter attitude towards sin. Zero tolerance. We're going to see it in its true horror, like this woman wickedness rearing her ugly head out of this basket. We want to seeking God's help to thrust that head back down and put the leaden cover back on it and send it away, never to return. And that is, that is something that we cannot do on our own, right? We've got to be looking to Christ for the strength to put sin to death and take it away. We can't trust in our own efforts to, to, to overcome it. We've got to rest in Christ, the Lamb of God. A lamb of God who takes away sin. Got to rest in his sacrifice. The way that he took the curse of the flying scroll upon himself that we deserved. We rest in the power of his spirit. Who is able, even now, to cut out, to purge away, to cleanse, to clean out the sin that is still clutching at us, still grabbing, still trying to get its hooks in us. But little by little, in this life, and one day, finally and completely, the Lord Jesus is freeing us from it. He's pulling out those barbs, hooks, disentangling us, and bringing us into the freedom purity and holiness that he's setting before us in this beautiful picture. That's something to look forward to. It's something to anticipate, to strain ahead towards day by day with all of the strength that God powerfully supplies to us in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these pictures that are, that are so bizarre and... Um, Hard to understand at first, but perhaps because they're so bizarre, it just makes them so vivid. And we pray that you would please impress on us 
what is clear about them, about your power to deal with sin, to judge it, but also to cleanse it away and to rid it from the holy place where you are holy God, plan to live with your holy people. Lord, make us a more holy people fit for that covenant relationship. Only you can do it. Lord, we pray that you would give us that zeal, that earnest desire for sin to be put away, be disentangled from it, to be rid of it forever, so that you might be more glorified in us, we might be more joyful in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.